Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Ezra chapter two. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are commonly referred to as the story of the restoration of Judah or Israel. And it comes at the end of their 70-year Babylonian exile. But restoration, in what sense? (laughs) Typically it is meant as the restoration of the temple and the reestablishment of Judah as the Jewish national homeland. From a purely historical standpoint, that's true. However, we also need to see this restoration from a wider spiritual viewpoint. The restoration we witness in these two books is mainly about reinstituting the Mosaic Law, complete with the benefits of atoning sacrifices, which can only be accomplished with the presence of an operable and a properly functioning temple and priesthood. When we look back to the book of Exodus, we see that Israel only became a set-apart nation at Mount Sinai when God first gave Moses the law. Prior to that time, they were a large, they were a growing, extended family with Jacob, also called Israel, as their patriarch. Until they were given a constitution, until they received a set of rules to live by, the law of Moses, they were not a nation of people capable of being governed. What made them a nation, and then a nation set apart from all other nations, was that their constitution and their set of rules was divine. Thus, while the Jews dispersed about about the Babylonian and then the Persian empires remained ethnically, racially connected, fully identifiable as Jews, without the reestablishment of their temple and the observance of the laws of Moses and without residing in the land that God had set apart for them, they could not be a nation of God. Now as we open Ezra chapter 2, the Babylonian Empire had, has been recently conquered and taken over by the Media Persian Empire under their king Cyrus the Great. Cyrus, a Gentile of course, was nonetheless directly used by Jehovah as the vehicle to punish Babylon for their inherent wickedness of worshiping a false god system, as well as for being a bit too harsh, in God's view, on his Jewish people. But Cyrus would also be the means to release the Jewish people from their captivity in order for them to go back to their homeland, to rebuild Jerusalem, reconstruct their temple, reconstitute the priesthood. We shouldn't think, however, that Cyrus's intent was for Judah to become an independent Jewish state with their own sovereign king. 
as it had been 70 years earlier. Rather, Judah was to remain a district, a province within the Persian Empire. Cyrus would continue to be their king. It's only that Cyrus was an enlightened ruler. And he would install a Jewish governor in Judah. And he would allow the Jews to worship their God in a way they chose. He would even encourage as many Jews who wanted to go, to go. And migrate back to Judah and to repopulate it. So, we kind of need to step back and get a bigger picture. From the time that Nebuchadnezzar first conquered Judah, about 606 B.C., right on through the time of Yeshua and beyond, Judah was never again an independent nation. Although it was Ezra's dream, no doubt the dream of most Jews down through the ages, that a fully independent state of Israel, like it was in David's and Solomon's time, would rise again, it wouldn't happen until 1948 in the modern era. And naturally, just as those four Gentile world kingdoms that Daniel predicted would prevent Israel from being sovereign and independent, so would other empires and and regional powers that followed them. And today, nations throughout this planet are doing what they can do to undo the miracle of the God of Israel that only a few years ago reestablished a sovereign Jewish state on the very land that God gave to Abraham. What we know with certainty in our time is that even though Israel is going to suffer greatly and at some point is going to become utterly decimated, they will never again be exiled from their land. We also know that the coming kingdom of God on earth is going to be governed by God himself in the form of Jesus Christ who will sit on his throne in Jerusalem with the coming third temple as his throne room. One final comment before we read Ezra chapter 2. This is going to be a long list of names. Some real tongue twisters. It's also going to be the names of people and names of places. It's going to feel tedious and in fact is one of those chapters that's regularly skipped over for that reason. However, because you have studied the Torah and the Old Testament books that come before Ezra, this is going to have much more meaning to you than to those who have not. So hang in there and you're going to find that there is more here than a casual reading of these precious words might reveal. So open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1117. 1117, and we're going to read this chapter.
Here is a list of the people of the province who had been exiled, carried off to to Babel by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, who later returned from exile and they went up to Jerusalem and Yehuda, Judah, each to his own city. They went with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reelah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpar, Bikvai, Rahum, and Bana. The number of the men from the people of Israel. Descendants of Parosh, 2,172. Descendants of Shephtaya, 372. Descendants of Arach, 775. Descendants of Pachat Moab, from the descendants of Yeshua and Yoav, 2,812. Descendants of Elam, 1,254. Descendants of Zatu, 945. Descendants of Zakai, 760. Descendants of Bani, 642. Descendants of Bavai, 623. Descendants of Azgad, uh, 1,222. Descendants of Adonikam, 666. Descendants of Bigvai, 2,056. Descendants of Adin, 454. Descendants of Ate, of Yechitzia, 98. Descendants of Betsai, 323. Descendants of Yorah, 112. Descendants of Hashum, 223. Descendants of Gebar, 95. Descendants of Beit Lechem, 123. The people of uh, Natofa, 56. People of Anatot, 128. Descendants of Azmavet, 42. Descendants of Kiryat Arim, Kefira, and Beirut, 743. Descendants of Ramon Geva, 621. People of Mikmash, 122. People of Beit El and Ai, 223. Descendants of Nebo, 52. Descendants of Magbish, 156. Descendants of the other Elam, 1,254. Descendants of, of uh, Harim, uh, 320. Descendants of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. Descendants of Yericho, uh, 345. Descendants of Sana'a, 3,630. The Kohanim, the priests. Descendants of Yedidyah, of the house of Yeshua, 973. Descendants of Imer, 1052. Descendants of Pashachur, 1247. Descendants of Harim, 1017. The Levain, the Levites. Descendants of Yeshua and Kadmiel, of the descendants of uh, uh, Hodoviah. The singers. Descendants of Asaf, 128. The descendants of the gatekeepers. Descendants of Shalom. Descendants of Ater. Descendants of Talmon. Descendants of Akuv. Descendants of Hatita. And descendants of Shovai. In all, 139. The temple servants. Descendants of uh, Zicha. Descendants of Hasufa. Descendants of Tabaot. Descendants of Keros. Descendants of Tsiaha. Descendants of Padon. Descendants of Levana. Descendants of Hagava. Descendants of Akuv. Descendants of Hagav. Descendants of Salmai. Descendants of Hanan. Descendants of Gidel. Descendants of Gachar. Descendants of Reiyah. Descendants of Retzin. Descendants of Nakoda. Descendants of Gazam. Descendants of Uzzah. Descendants of Paseach. Descendants of Besai. 
descendants of Azna, descendants of Meonim, descendants of Nefusim, descendants of Bakbuch, descendants of Hafukah, descendants of Harhur, descendants of Batslut, descendants of Machda, descendants of Harsha, descendants of Barkos, descendants of Sisra, descendants of Tamach, descendants of Netzaiach, descendants of Hatifa, the descendants of Shlomo's servants, Solomon's servants, descendants of Sotai, descendants of Hasafret, descendants of Pruda, descendants of Ya'ala, descendants of Darkon, descendants of Getel, descendants of Shefteyah, descendants of Hatil, descendants of Pokoret Hatzvaim, and descendants of Ami. All the temple servants and the descendants of Shlomo's servants numbered 392. Now the following went up from Tel Malach, Tel Harsha, Kruv, Adan, and Emer, but they would not, could not state which father's clan they or their children belonged to. So it was not clear whether they were from Israel. Descendants of Delayah, descendants of Toviah, and descendants of Nakoda, 652. And of the descendants of the Kohanim, the priests, descendants of Haviah, descendants of Hakots, descendants of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, Barzillai the Giladi, and was named after them. These tried to locate their genealogical records, but they weren't found. Therefore, they were considered defiled. They were not allowed to serve as priests. The Tirshatah told them not to eat any of the specially, especially holy food until a priest appeared who cons- could consult the Urim and Tumim. The entire assembly numbered 42,360, not including their male and female slaves, of whom there were 7,337. They also had 200 male and female singers. Their horses numbered 736, mules 245, camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Some of the heads of fathers' clans, when they came to the house of Adonai in Jerusalem, made voluntary offerings for rebuilding the house of God on its site. And according to their means, they gave into the treasury for the work 61,000 gold darkmonim, 5,000 manim of silver, and 100 tunics for the Kohanim, for the priests. So the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all Israel in their towns. Okay. Catch my breath here now. What's been described here? is the first wave of Jews to return to Judah. Now when I say first wave, I don't necessarily mean that these were the first or the only Jews to go back with this group. It's generally thought today by Bible historians that the names listed didn't go as one big group and one long procession that arrived back in Judah simultaneously. Rather, this list is comprised of folks who came back in various stages, starting around 538 B.C. to perhaps 521 B.C. So this list is a composite list that was compiled by the editor of Ezra from other records and documents. 
In fact, this same list appears in other places in the Bible, such as in Nehemiah 7. It also appears in the Greek version of Ezra that's called Esdras. That said, there are some minor differences among these various accounts in the list of the names and the places and in the listing of the numbers of people and in the items that were taken with them. Further, most of the numbers don't add up to the sum totals that are given. However, if we assume that it's the sum totals of people and of items that are correct and that it is the listing of individual people and items that's been corrupted by inadvertent copyist errors in ancient times, then we can begin by saying that something around 50,000 Jews returned to Judah from their homes in the Persian Empire in this first wave. And this means that at least 95% of all living Jews in the 6th century BC elected not to go back to their homeland. Thus, those who returned had strong reasons to go. After all, the province of Judah, especially the holy city of Jerusalem, still lay in ruins. And there was a political opposition from those in surrounding areas to rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. And we're going to discuss that in detail in later chapters. Some of those reasons to return, no doubt, were spiritually driven. But others were more practical. And it had much to do with a hope of reclaiming land and fields and orchards that their families had owned at one time. We must remember that depending on which wave of Jewish deportees that were exiled from Judah to Babylon that one was a part of, no Jewish family at this time had been separated from their land holdings any longer than 70 years and others as short as 50 years. So just as we see today that Jews are still recovering property and receiving reparations resulting from their mass imprisonment by the Nazis in World War II, 50 to 70 years is not enough time for families to just become fully disconnected from or forget about what at one time was theirs. So this is why we see mention at the end of verse 1 that these Jewish returnees that of these Jewish returnees some returned to Jerusalem mostly to deal with rebuilding the temple but others returned to Judah each to his own city in other words to reclaim their land holdings then we get a listing of leading men who headed up this first wave of returning Jews. And we get a similar list in Nehemiah chapter 7. And while mostly the same, there are a couple of differences. Now we're not going to delve deeply into these discrepancies, but what we can conclude from it would involve way too much speculation if we did. I'm just going to sum it up by saying that while in, Ez, in our Ezra listing we find the names Sariah, Reelah, Mishpar, and Rehum, 
in the Nehemiah 7 list, we find instead of those names, Azariah, Ramia, Mishparet, and Nahum. Plus in Nehemiah, a name is added that doesn't appear in Ezra. Nahamani. Now, some of this can be explained away as simply spelling variations. And, and some is very likely the result of different ways the names were pronounced in ancient times. However, not everything works out so easily. Some differences may be due to who exactly was considered important enough to list as one of these important leaders. And some might be due to copy errors in the ancient Hebrew text. Nonetheless, the lists are essentially the same. There are, however, a couple of names that I want us to look at because they will provide some continuity as we study Ezra and Nehemiah and also as we incorporate the prophets from that era, mainly Haggai and Zephaniah. Now, the first name listed indicating his preeminence is Zerubbabel. We discussed last time that this name has caused some problems because in chapter 1, it seems as though the highest ranked leader of the return was a fellow named Shesh Bazar. And then with the beginning of chapter 2, the leader is called Zerubbabel. And for the longest time, scholars thought that this was the same person who went by two different names. His Babylonian name and his Hebrew name. That, That was kind of a common practice. However, extensive study and new discoveries makes it makes it very unlikely. And more likely it is that these were two different but related people. And as we discovered in our last lesson, First Chronicles chapter 3 gives us a listing of David's royal descendants. And in that list is a man named Shenazar, who is the uncle of Zerubbabel. And almost certainly, Shenazar is an alternate, alternate spelling for Sheshbazar. And this is all the more likely because back in chapter 1, this Shesh Bazaar is said to be a, 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 a priest, not a priest, rather a prince or a chief, a Nazi of Judah. This means Shesh Bazaar had to be royalty of Judah. And the only legitimate royalty of Judah was King David's line. Thus, for reasons not recorded, Shesh Bazar turned over leadership to his nephew, Zerubbabel. Maybe it was due to death. Maybe Shesh Bazar was too frail or elderly to make the four month journey. And so the younger Zerubbabel was selected. We just don't know. Now, I want to remind you one more time about names of persons and places in the Bible. And this is so important to get. They can be confusing and challenging because they vary and yet can still be very accurate. And there are three primary reasons for these variations. First is that they are the same name but they're in different languages. Second is sometimes place names just change over time. And third, words can be pronounced differently depending on one's location. Southerners ought to know that real well. For example, once while traveling across country, I stopped in a well-known city in Kentucky to get gasoline. And as I talked to the station attendant, I asked him how to get back on the interstate highway. 
He told me to take Lovell Street. Take Lovell Street to another street and make a turn. And I drove around for a half an hour. I could never find Lovell Street. Finally, I got frustrated and I pulled over. And I asked another local where Lovell Street was. And he said, you're on it. And I looked up and there on the street sign it said, Louisville. <laughs> Aha! Louisville is pronounced Lovell by the locals. And depending on who you talk to, this place is all call, also called Louisville. Now imagine that you are a recorder of history. And you are supposed to write down the name of this place in a history book. But you also have to do it in a foreign language. And especially a language that uses an entirely different alphabet. See, here's the same place that's pronounced in the same language in at least three different ways. And essentially, all writing has the goal of using written characters to capture and tell us the sound of a spoken word. There is no way you could write down the spoken words Louisville, Louisville, and Lovell using the same spelling. Let me give you another example that even involves variant spellings and pronunciations that employ the same language just enunciated differently in different locations. The word schedule is pronounced schedule in England while pronounced schedule in the USA. Now if we stuck to our common alphabet correctly to capture the sound of that word in England, it ought to be spelled S-H-E-D-Y-O-O-L, schedule. In the U.S., it should be spelled S-K-E-D-U-A-L, schedule. And if that happened, a few hundred years from now, language experts would argue whether these two spellings were the same word or if they even meant two different things. The only way you know is to delve deeply into each culture to ferret out exactly what people meant by those words and how they sounded when they were spoken. This is what we regularly encounter in the Bible. So until proven otherwise, I'm going to go forward saying Shenazar is Sheshbazar and this person is Zerubbabel's uncle. Now the next name in the list that I want to talk about is one that is very familiar to Hebrew roots and Messianic folks, Yeshua. Now the usual Western Christian pronunciation of this word is of course Jesus. The Yeshua we find here in Ezra is of course not Jesus of Nazareth. But this Yeshua of the Ezra list is an important figure. He is a priest. And in fact, he will be the first high priest of the rebuilt temple and the restored priesthood in Jerusalem. Hmm. And since Yeshua is such an important name to believers, Gentile or Jew, I just want to remind you 
that Yeshua is exactly the same name as Joshua. The only difference is that Yeshua is a contraction for the more formal name Yehoshua, which is an alternate Hebrew spelling for Joshua. So for all practical purposes, Yeshua, Yahshua, Yehoshua, and Joshua, they're all the same name. Just pronounced slightly differently, spelled slightly differently. This Yeshua was the son of Yosedek and grandson of Sariah. And Sariah was the last high priest of Israel, of Judah really, to preside before the temple was destroyed and then he was put to death by Nebuchadnezzar. It's fascinating to me that a fellow named Yeshua, which means God saves, would be the high priest of the restoration of God's temple, land, people, and of the law of Moses as the Jews return from their Babylonian exile. And that our Yeshua, the Messiah, will be the high priest of the final restoration of God's temple, land, people, and the law of Moses as we enter the millennium. This is a God pattern and a prophecy. It's not some happy coincidence. Now verse 2 ends with the words, The number of men from the people of Israel. And then there's a listing of names under that category that commences. Now there's more to this statement than what it might say. First of all, notice that lists we find in chapter 2 are broken into categories. They have different headings. The first category consists of those names from verse 2 that that are of especially important leaders. Then beginning in verse 3 is a listing of lay people. Verse 36 starts a list of priests, Kohanim. Verse 40 is a list of Levites. Next in verse 41 are the singers. Verse 42, the gatekeepers. Verse 45, a long list of temple servants called in Hebrew, Nethanim. And then after that, we have a group that begins in verse 45 labeled as Shlomo, Solomon's servants. And we're going to talk about the remaining two categories later. See, here's the thing to notice. The three major group headings are the Israelites, the priests, and the Levites. We have to go all the way back to Leviticus and to Numbers to recall that the Lord separated the tribe of Levi away from Israel. Levi would no longer be counted as among their brothers the other tribes of Israel as being part of Israel. There are several verses that address this issue, but here's one that sums it up well. In Numbers 18.20, Adonai said to Aaron, You are not to have any inheritance or portion in their land. I'm your portion and inheritance among the people of Israel. So this section of Ezra is recognizing that the tribe of Levi is not part of Israel. And that Levi itself is divided into two groups, priests and non-priests. But wait, why does this refer to Israel 
and then give a series of names and places that are actually associated with Judah. I mean, shouldn't this be speaking of the lay people of Judah? Not referring to the lay people of Israel. After all, this passage is about an exodus of Judahites, Jews. Back to Judah. Two centuries earlier, the ten northern tribes of Israel, called Ephraim Israel, had been removed from their land, scattered throughout the Asian continent by the Assyrians, and they simply became absorbed into countless Gentile nations where they went. So, there are a number of opinions about why the word Israel appears here and how it is that we ought to take its meaning. I think it's actually fairly straightforward, not so challenging to understand, but there are several elements involved. And they're all important to us. First of all, the Torah describes a time out in the wilderness when the tribes of Israel were divided by God into two groups. The lay people would be called Israel, the priestly group, the Levites. So the editor of Ezra is recalling this divine division of Israel and he uses that as his rationale for establishing these several categories of people that are named in Ezra chapter 2. Second is that because the ten northern tribes called Israel had been scattered and dispersed for so long and their Hebrew identity had become greatly diluted, in some cases forgotten, the Jews of Judah began to think of themselves as the only surviving remnant of all Israel. So they thought of themselves to be representative of all Israel, all 12 tribes, not just the two tribes of Judah and of Benjamin. Third, it's true. A handful of folks from the ten northern tribes had migrated to Judah between the time of the Assyrian exile of the ten northern tribes, which was around 722 B.C., and the Babylonian exile of Judah about 606 B.C. But there's no evidence that those who had migrated into Judah had kept their formal tribal identities. Rather, they had mostly assimilated. And over that hundred years or so, had just become Judahites. Whatever few might not have assimilated seems to be an insignificantly small number. And as we're going to eventually learn in Ezra chapter 8, Once the temple was rebuilt and the priesthood was ready to again function, a series of sacrifices to dedicate the temple and the priesthood took place. Everything about the dedication ceremony revolved around the number 12, which is symbolic of the 12 tribes. For instance, 12 priests were chosen. The ceremonial procession began on the twelfth day of the month and twelve bulls were sacrificed. And verse 35 of Ezra chapter 8 specifically states that the twelve bulls were meant to represent all Israel. Thus the tradition began with the return from Babylon, from the Babylonian exile, that the Jews considered themselves at that point to be all Israel. Notice I said tradition. 
Because this well-meaning thought to see themselves as all Israel was a fiction. They were not all Israel. And in fact, Ezekiel speaks of a day when the ten tribes of Ephraim Israel would eventually join with Judah to reform all Israel. Ezekiel spoke this prophecy around the time Nebuchadnezzar was conquering Judah. And it is likely that the Jews were assuming that this prophecy that was spoken about 70 years earlier was referring to the return to Judah from their Babylonian exile. Yet when we read Ezekiel 37, the last few verses make it clear that couldn't possibly be so. Ezekiel is directly linked to why it is that the editor of Ezra probably chose to call the returning Jews Israel instead of Judah. So we're going to stop and we're going to read Ezra 37 in its entirety. Now we've read it before in earlier lessons, but because it is so pertinent to us now, and in the immediate future, it's sure worth that, sure worth looking at again. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Very powerful chapter. Ezekiel chapter 37, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 691. Here we go. Ezekiel chapter 37. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley, they were so dry. And he asked me, human being, can these bones live? And I answered, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones, say to them dry bones. Hear what Adonai has to say. To these bones, Adonai Elohim says, I will make breath enter you and you will live. I will attach ligaments to you, make flesh grow on you, cover you with skin, put breath in you. You will live and you will know that I am Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. It was the bones coming together, each bone in its proper place. And as I watched, ligaments grew on them, flesh appeared, skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Next he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy human being. Say to the breath that Adonai Elohim says, Come from the four winds, breathe and breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as ordered and the breath came into them and they were alive and they stood up on their feet a huge army. And then he said to me, human being, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they are saying our bones have dried up, our hope is gone, we are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Adonai Elohim says, my people... I will open your graves and make you get up out of your graves. I'll bring you into the land of Israel. 
then you will know that I am Adonai who ha- when I have opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people. I'll put my spirit in you. You will be alive. Then I will place you in your own land and you will know that I, Adonai, have spoken that I have done it, says Adonai. The word of Adonai came to me, you, human being, take one stick and write on it for Judah and for those joined with him among the people of Israel. Take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel who's joined with him. And finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. And when your people ask you what all of this means, tell them that Adonai Adonai Elohim says this, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, put them together with the stick of Judah, and make them a single stick so that they become one in my hand. The sticks on which you write are to be in your hand as they watch. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning. I'll cleanse them so that they will be my people and I'll be their God. My servant David will be king over them. And all of them will have one shepherd. They will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there, they, their children, their grandchildren, forever. David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai, who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. So there you have it. There will be a time when the tribes of Ephraim Israel will be rejoined with the tribes of Judah. They will then go back to the mountains of Israel and reconstruct a sovereign nation. And if you or I were among the pious and zealous Jews returning home to Judah from Babylon and from Persia, and if we only wish to concern ourselves with the first 21 verses of Ezekiel 37 and to ignore the last 7 verses of this chapter, then it's easy to see why they would assume, why you would assume, that this prophecy was pointing to their return home from their Babylonian exile. But when we read those final 7 verses, it's made clear that what they will reestablish is a permanent sovereign nation and a descendant of David will rule over them forever. The problem is that they would never again 
until 1948 of our current era be sovereign. And they would not be under a Davidic king. They're still not, obviously. And they would not remain in that land forever. Rather, not long after Christ's death, the temple would once again be destroyed and Jerusalem decimated, this time by the Romans. The Jews would not have their own king. The Jews would once again be exiled. So the events of Ezekiel 37 can't possibly have referred to the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. And as a result of what we read today in the second chapter of Ezra, the Jews of the modern state of Israel have continued in this 2,500 year old Jewish tradition that they are the 12 tribes of Israel. However, some are starting to face up to this fantasy as the 10 so-called lost tribes have only recently re-emerged from their hiding places in Asia. And they are insisting they have the right to go home to Israel. Not as Judah, not as Jews, but rather as Ephraim Israelites. And through some newly modified laws of Israel and some rethinking on the part of some of the chief rabbis in Israel, the realization is slowly settling in that the Jews don't represent all 12 tribes, just two of them. The other 10 tribes are starting to trickle home. Is Ephraim Israelites joining with their Jewish brothers as illustrated by that two sticks prophecy and so the fulfillment now think about this the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 is finally underway but it's not happening in the 6th century BC as those Jewish returnees from Babylon thought instead it's in the 21st century AD right before our very eyes We are the eyewitnesses of the fulfilling of Ezekiel 37. What a privilege. See, this is a great lesson for all believers, Jewish or Gentile. The Jews of old thought they saw prophecy partially fulfilled and they thought close enough. And thus they jumped to some conclusions that proved to be false. And as we read the prophecies of the latter days and the end times, we need to realize, oh, that it's all going to come true, not just part of it. And it will be full, and it will be complete, not partial. And exactly how it looks when it happens is difficult to impossible for us to know right now. We just have to maintain faith that it will happen. And we need to be on the lookout for it to happen. Let's now spend just a short time deciphering these several lists of names that form Ezra chapter 2. We'll just be a few minutes with this. First, the names that are presented come in two forms. Family names and place names. 
So from verses 3 through 20, we have a list of clan or family names who are going back to Judah. From verses 21 to 35, we have we don't have the names of people. We have the names of cities and towns that certain exiles originally came from and they're on their way back to where they believe they still have land holdings to reclaim as their own. And it is important to note that all of these place names, all of these cities and towns, lie within the territory of Judah, not to the former territory of the northern ten tribes. Let me also address something that I've heard some Hebrew roots folks and Jews claim. It is that many of these names listed are associated clans of the ten northern tribes of Ephraim Israel, thus possibly indicating that many of the ten lost tribes were among this group. This claim has no validity. In my research of excellent ancient language experts and the top tier modern Bible scholars, there is no way to differentiate whether these names are associated with Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Dan, Reuben, or any other specific tribe. There's no way to know. Now the list of Kohanim, the list of priests, starting at verse 36 is short. There's only four family names given. And that would make sense because there were only ever a handful of priestly families and so their numbers would be comparatively small. This list can be directly connected to the list of priestly families in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Chapter 24. After the priests are listed, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers are listed. And it's rather surprising that the number of Levite temple workers is so few as compared to the priests. One would expect the number of Levite temple workers to be a factor of at least three or four times higher than the number of priests whom the Levites served. We can only speculate that since the Levites were the blue-collar workers who held menial jobs and they were essentially servants to the higher class priests, there weren't very many Levites in Persia and Babylon all that eager to return. In fact, later on in chapter 8, we're going to find Ezra complaining that he could only muster 38 of them to come and serve. Now, most scholars and rabbis believe that the singers were also Levites. The gatekeepers' jobs were to keep the temple and the treasury safe and secure. There was a sizable number of gatekeepers who returned, 139. Likely because the job carried some prestige and didn't involve very much arduous labor. All of the Levites were listed by family name and not the Levitical city that their family had come from. Then we come to verse 43, and a class of workers called temple servants, or Nathanim. And these appear to be the lowliest class of temple workers. This class was subordinate to both the priests and the common Levite temple workers. The Nathanim were the servants of the servants, so to speak. Now there's some controversy about just who these folks are. Very likely they were originally a mixture 
of foreigners who were captured in war and assigned to the worst possible temple duties that no Levite wanted. Along with the Gibeonites, people from Benjamin, who were at one time punished almost to extinction, and then some amount of hereditary Levites. We've got a few more categories to go, which we'll look at next week, and then next week we'll also get into chapter 3. As the Jews arrive back in Judah, and now they begin to settle in and start the task of rebuilding the Holy Temple.